This episode is sponsored by Voltoro. Keep on listening and you'll find out more about how you can buy allocated gold when the Bitcoin bull run reaches its peak. This way, you don't have to deal with infinitely inflationary fiat or banks that freeze your account. Also, note that trading involves risks and the information presented is not financial advice. This episode is also sponsored by Wasabi Wallet. Go to wasabiwallet.io, download Wasabi for your OS and significantly boost your network level and transaction privacy. Hello there and welcome to Season 8, Episode 3 of the Bitcoin Takeover Podcast. My name is Vlad and my guest today, and I'm not going to mention his name yet, may be known by you according to different phases and different projects in which he has been involved. And depending on how long you have been around, you can either know him as the marketing guy from BitInstant or the blogger who wrote about money and state on moneyandstay.com, which was his blog at the time, or you might know him as the founder and CEO of Satoshi Dice, or you might know him as the CEO and founder of Shapeshift, and he did that under a pseudonym at first, and then it was revealed like magic at the time that he was actually behind it. And his name is Derek Vorkis, and today he will be talking about Bitcoin security, hardware wallets, and also the KeepKey, which is the device that is owned currently by the Shapeshift company. And it's quite a premium device that right now gets sold for a very small price, which is still a mystery to me. It was like 250 bucks a few years ago, now it's like 30. So hello, Mr. Voorhees, it's good to have you. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Okay, so since this season is about hardware wallets and affordable ways to store your bitcoins in a secure way, my first question for you concerns your exposure to hardware wallets in general. When was the first time when you tried one? And what did you think about it? Like, does it make self-custody safer and easier? Or did you have other ways that you preferred at the time instead of hardware wallets? Yeah, well, like wallets generally have just come come so far. Like the the first uh, the first Bitcoin wallet I had was was just you know Bitcoin uh, D, and and then downloaded a, a full node on my wife's phone. She could actually run a full node on her Android phone back in 2011. It was like the only Bitcoin app in existence. Um, obviously, it was not a great experience. And so when the hardware wallets came along, that was like a an exciting new thing, and I, I'm pretty sure the first one I ever had was the original Trezor. I had a first edition aluminum one, which is just a, a beautiful device. Uh, I bought several of those, and um, and it was like ten bitcoins, right? <laughs> What's that? And it was like ten bitcoins for the one with the metal casing. Oh God, yeah, <laughs> that's probably one of those things that I would regret if I looked up how much I spent on it, but. Um, I don't remember what year that came out. I mean, was that as early as 2012? No. I think it was 2014 when it got released like commercially, but before that they had several 
prototypes and they tried to do a Kickstarter. It was kind yeah. of difficult for them in the Czech Republic to launch this business, but at the same time it was Slush and he is the creator of the first mining pool. So he had some resources, but maybe he still struggled. I spoke with Elena Vranova and she mentioned that it was not easy to launch a business in a former communist European country. <laughs> yeah, well, this, the sad irony is, you know, that would be a precursor to so many businesses that have tried to launch and provide Bitcoin services that have run into various government problems in one way or another. So they certainly weren't unique, but anything that's going to be in the physical world was going to be even more difficult. So yeah, that, that was really the first one. Um, obviously bought a few ledgers and tried those and uh, and KeepKey as well and uh, and Shapeshift acquired KeepKey in uh, mid-2017. Yeah, I remember when I was writing for Bitcoin Magazine that I was speaking with my editor at the time and she told me that she was using KeepKeys and I found it strange because usually the conversation goes between Ledger and Trezor and most of the times it's about personal values, whether or not you're willing to trust in a company's competence to provide security, or you want everything to be as open source as possible so you can verify every transaction and every line of code that goes into the device. So to find out that there's somebody who's using something else, it was quite, you know, a strange feeling. Like, okay, so why would anyone use a key key? And that's when I get got one and it's, I have it somewhere around here on my desk. It, it has that very large screen, which I guess was very innovative when it first came out because you did not have to scroll. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, I think from the beginning, you know, and it was all designed kind of before my time, but I, I think they did a beautiful job with it. Um, and it was, yeah, it was designed to be a good UX, you know, to be useful for people and small enough to still be very portable, but still to show transaction information, mostly on one screen um, as needed, which is somewhat helpful for security because it reduces mistakes a bit, but is more just about, you know, making sure the user experience is, is a good one. Um, obviously, KeepKey, of course, is, is open source as well, because no one should be trusting their coins on any, any software that is not. Right. And I just want to ask you, since you have been in Bitcoin for almost 10 years now. What were the most popular wallets that you were using back in the day? I think back in the day, the, the big one that was massive and, and still is, even though it's not as talked about on the retail level anymore, is, uh, is blockchain. So back then it was blockchain.info. And, um, <laughs> you know, they had really built the first web wallet that was also uh, secure and non-custodial. Um, there were a number of web wallets back then that were custodial, and you know there were several massive disasters with insider hacks or external hacks, or sometimes you don't quite know which is which. But that convenience was always really important, and so blockchain.info I think was the first one I remember that really did a good job of doing something with a with a pretty decent UX and still maintaining. Uh, a non-custodial nature and um, 
you know, they, they grew, they grew huge. And I think, you know, today they probably have the second highest number of wallets behind Coinbase, even though um, they aren't talked about as much. Yeah, I, I think the main drawback with blockchain nowadays is that they're not open source. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's always I, I think anyone who's who's really into crypto needs to mandate that, you know, in anything that they're using. I mean, it was also my first wallet, so I got it just because it was so easy to find in the app store. And yeah. I quickly switched to what was it called? Green address, I think. Now it's Blockstream Green, but it was Green Address back in the day. And I found it more, I don't know, power user-like. It it offered so many more options that I did not find in blockchain, which is very basic. It's, I don't know, bare-bone wallet. Yeah. It even sends yeah. the transactions in the next block, or at least it did back in the day. I think now they added some options. Yeah. Th- thankfully, people are spoiled for choice these days. There's tons of different wallets with all different kinds of features ranging from highly technical to super easy, you know, things that are custodial like Coinbase um, to any form of running your own node, which is quite easy these days as well. Oh, yeah. And by the way, um, I'm not sure if we have planned this because everyone received their questions beforehand, but I just want to mention Start9 Labs, which you are also an investor in. And I think it's doing a great job, especially uh, the part about Bitcoin may be typical because there are lots of similar projects that do Bitcoin, but it's much more than that. You've added Mastodon and you're planning to add WordPress, which is possibly the biggest platform for website deployment. And what the software is going to become at some point in the future is essentially your personal server to run all of your applications and self-host the content, which I think is huge. Yeah, and you know, obviously, you know, anyone can run their own server, you know, so that in and of itself is not new. I think what Start9 is doing that's so cool is that it's it's makes running a server and running the applications on it, you know, nearly as easy as just downloading apps to your phone. So it really can be kind of a mainstream thing with a little more refinement. But also it's built from the ground up to be, you know, as private as possible, end-to-end encrypted on everything, native Tor connections on everything by default. And um, that is something that you don't find very often. And and generally, if you want to be using Tor by default on things, it requires a lot of of work and expertise as a user. And, um, you know, for those who think that those privacy tools should be more widespread. Uh, it has to be as easy as possible. Yeah, I agree. And it has a very nice user interface. I got to give it a try. So far, I've only looked at documentation and what's available on the website and possibly some tweets. But that part about WordPress got me most interested because nowadays it's so easy to rent a server and deploy WordPress on it. And you say that you have your own website and your own content. It's still better than using something like Medium, which Mm -hmm. is a custodian of your content and your intellectual output, and they can censor you and remove anything whenever they want to. But to have it on your own server so easily, I think to me, that's the killer app. 
Yeah, I think in, you know, Start9 got started, I don't know, 18 to 24 months ago, something like that. And really, I think what they what they saw, understandably, is that as the world moves to clouds, uh, everyone is really at the behest of some large company that's hosting their stuff. And the convenience of that is fantastic, and it's been it's been great for the world in some ways. But you you totally lose your sovereignty over your information, and anyone from the Bitcoin world, you know, just understands innately how important sovereignty is over money. And so Start Nine is really trying to apply that principle of immutable data um, beyond beyond money. So it it supports Bitcoin. Obviously, it's a great way to run a full node on a easy server over Tor. Um, but if you can be running lots of different apps that are self-hosted, you know that allows people to really take back control of a lot of other parts of their digital life. Yeah, I really look forward to the future updates and what they have on the roadmap. But for now, let me get back on track with the conversation about securing Bitcoins and hardware wallets. And usually when people talk about the importance of self-sovereignty, they present the case of Mt. Gox and what happened in that situation. And to a lot of people, that seems very distant. And they say, yeah, but that happened like seven or eight years ago or something. So it should not affect me because look at these exchanges. They have improved their security and they're a lot more safe. But then again, it happened to, I think it was Binance like a year or two ago when they lost a lot of Bitcoins and their CEO even proposed I don't know, maybe it was a stupid idea, but it was stupid to say nonetheless that he wanted to revert the blockchain to get back the funds. So I think that these attacks are not very distant and are not long gone. And there's always that vector which concerns user data when they sort KYC data. And by the way, I'm very happy that you reverted from doing mandatory KYC on Shapeshift. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, we, we can talk about that as, as well, if you'd like. Uh, it, in terms of the self-custody, I think people are right that a lot of the, a lot of the um, hosted wallets have gotten better than Mt. Gox. I mean, that was a, a pretty low bar you know, to get better. Um, and so they're like, well, things have gotten better. I don't really need to worry about hacks. Uh, and that's kind of a foolish way to think about it, because if you're holding any significant value, even a small tail risk of a hack uh, is something that you should be seriously concerned with. And Mt. Gox is absolutely not the only high-profile hack that's happened. It's not even the biggest anymore. They, they became so commonplace that people have kind of lost track of how many have happened. But they, there's an even more important reason to hold your own keys. Uh, and that is because as, as Bitcoin grows, as this stuff becomes more popular and more widespread, as it actually become, starts challenging uh, government sovereignty over money, governments and their pressure will come down everywhere that it can. And that will happen primarily at the centralized exchanges and at the custodians. And what this means is that if you are using Bitcoin held by a custodian, it is going to end up looking or feeling just like it would if you had a normal bank account with, with money in it. You are at the behest of some other party, and in particular, you're at the behest of another party, which is at the behest of the government. So if you care about the whole principle of Bitcoin, which is immutability and having sovereignty over your own money, um, you know it's okay to, 
to use custodial services sometimes and to understand them. But that shouldn't be your destination. You should learn enough to hold your own keys uh, and and not just that, but you know understand why that's important and help others to do so as, as well. If no one's holding their own keys, uh, all this stuff is is pointless. Sometimes an argument that I get from people who ask me why they should get their coins out of exchanges is that the coins are so-called insured. And I've used air quotes right now with my fingers when they usually say, yeah, but this is insured and I can get my money back. And I'm like, yeah, but you get fiat, which is infinitely inflationary. So by the time you get it back and they determine like some sort of insurance company determines that it's right that you receive that amount of money, it's possible that you will not be able to buy the same amount of Bitcoin that you had. Yeah, well, that's that's for sure. I mean, insurance is only as good as the the insurance that gets paid. So there's a lot of companies that claim to have insurance. Their fine print is one thing, but then if there's ever a catastrophic loss, you know, there is going to be years of court battles with the various lawsuits with the insurance company. The insurance company is going to do everything they possibly can to not pay. And when it comes to something as new and strange as as cryptocurrency, they probably have a lot of interesting tactics that, that they can use. So insurance is just a you know, it's it's helpful. It might be useful if it gets into a bad situation, but you can't count on that. Um, and it can often mislead people into a false sense of security. I guess that's what it does. And exchanges like Coinbase and Kraken, they do have some sort of FDIC insurance. I think that's what they call it. Well, it's definitely not FDIC insurance, but it is. They have various private insurances, I believe, and the the fiat that you hold there is held in a bank somewhere, which is FDIC insured to some degree. But who cares about insuring fiat? I don't know. There are all sorts of people <laughs> who get into this space and they don't get it, at least not at first. They just see like, I suppose you spoke about it in the documentary Banking on Bitcoin. You mentioned that mm -hmm. Bitcoin is like a bicycle. I, I just remember that reference, that comparison that you've made, because it was so strange to me. Like, what do you mean a bicycle? Like, you learn how to ride it and that's it. But yeah, you have to figure it out because at first you look at the bicycle and natively as a human being, you have no idea how it works unless you see other people using it. But even after you watch other people using it, you still need how to understand how it works when you use it yourself. So there are a lot of people who get into this just because they see news about the price and they have unrealistic expectations. And mm -hmm. maybe that they don't even have the proper mindset to understand why it's important to separate state, the state from the money or why it's important to be sovereign, why it's important to own your own money. That's very counterintuitive in today's world where the banks have become an extension of the state. And I usually give the example of me being a student in France in 2015 when I could not get anything, like I could not get a phone number because I needed a bank account. But to get a bank account, I needed to have a contract for the apartment in which I was living. And the landlord <laughs> did not want to sign a contract and even taught me how to explain to policemen if needed that I'm his cousin or something. Yeah, which is, and it's 
totally preposterous that to use a money system, you have to provide an address of where you're living. Like why, why in the world are those two things connected to each other? Bitcoin comes along, you download an app, and in 30 seconds, you are connected to a global financial system. Um, it's amazing that people don't see how superior that is. They, they can't get over the, the learning curve of realizing that it's a different thing, which requires you know a bit of understanding of something new. But there, therein is the opportunity. And even the people that are just in it to make a bunch of money and get rich off the appreciation, even those people need to understand why it's appreciating. You know, like if you're going to buy something because you think it'll go up, why do you think it will go up? Why will Bitcoin go up? The reason it will go up is because it brings this immutable quality to money that uh, that mankind has never had before. And it only has that immutable property to the extent that people are holding their own keys. So e even for those people, they should understand the importance of, uh, of self-custody generally. Voltoro, and that's V-A-U-L-T, like a gold volt, and O-R-O, -O, Oro, which is Spanish for gold, is a gold and Bitcoin exchange, which offers instant swaps between hard money to over 31,000 customers from more than 95 countries. Voltoro has offered Swiss privacy and security since 2015. Furthermore, the gold you purchase is your legal property, secured in your name, so even if something happens to Voltoro, even liquidators could not touch your gold. If you want to become the custodian of your own gold bars, you can request to have them delivered to you or simply trade them back to Bitcoin on the dip. Register for free in only 30 seconds and start trading only with hard money. Please keep in mind that all trading involves risks. This is not financial advice and you are responsible for your own decisions. When you are using Wasabi Wallet, your internet connection gets routed through the Tor network by default. This means that you get better privacy while using Bitcoin. Download it today at wasabiwallet.io I don't know, nowadays I see like three different cults on Twitter. There is one which says Bitcoin will go up because there is Michael Saylor and there is Elon Musk who are buying it. There is the cult which says Bitcoin goes up because there is the program scarcity and there is that stock to flow model. So it's guaranteed that the demand will increase every four years to form new all time highs, which go 10x. Like, I don't know. Some people just believe in that. And there's also the side which says that it's a good idea to put your Bitcoins to work. I think that's the phrase that they use and they lend it to BlockFi or Celsius or lending services like that. And they just trust them that they're going to give them interest and they're going to be solvent no matter the market conditions, which I think is also very, very risky. Like what if Bitcoin goes course, up yeah. like 200% overnight? Are there's are they still going to be able to pay all of that interest in Bitcoin as they claim? <laughs> yeah, it's a, a very fair question. Um, even those first two groups, you know, the ones who think Bitcoin will go up because there are people like Saylor and, and Musk buying it, um, and people that think it'll go up because there's demand and as the scarcity continues, 
that caused it to go up. Both of those still beg the question of why the demand exists. Why do Sailor and Musk want Bitcoins in the first place? Why will there be demand? You know, something being scarce does not mean it will be in demand. And to answer those questions, you have to understand the nature of money generally and the nature of Bitcoin specifically and how it compares to the alternatives. And once you understand those things, then you understand why there will be demand, why Bitcoin will outpace fiat easily. Um, and then all the other pieces make sense to you. Yeah, I mean, I guess that these examples simplify the perspectives and I guess talk to flow is a lot more elaborate, but to me, it seems like some sort of cult which revolves around a Dutch banker who came up with this idea of putting some sort of model that is used in traditional finance on top of Bitcoin. And he started assuming that the demand remains constant or rises, even though there is a lot of work that goes behind that demand. There is yeah. development at the protocol level, there is development at the business level, there is education, advocacy, and a lot of work that people do just for that demand to exist. But people just come out of out of nowhere and assume that it's just there. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people don't like the uncertainty. And, you know, ever since I learned about Bitcoin, I've always made sure to continually remind myself that it's an experiment and that it can go to zero. There's nothing guaranteed about it at all. And you have to understand that if, if you're to conceive of it correctly. So there, there's no guarantee that it rises. You know, like there's reasons why it may rise. And a lot of us believe they're very good reasons and it's a very compelling story. But nothing's guaranteed and the stock to flow model can totally break. There's a number of reasons why that may not match in the future, even though it has matched in the past. Oh yeah, I, I've had Peter Todd last year and he was like, yeah, but you know, Bitcoin, just like everything else, will go to zero eventually. Like he, he's certain, or maybe that he's trolling me, but he is certain that everything, regardless of how long it, it exists and how people use it or for how long they have been using it, will eventually go to zero because he uses some sort of laws of thermodynamics and assumes that even the sun is not a constant and is going to get consumed and drained of energy at some point. Yeah, although that's kind of a, a meaningless opinion to have, you know, like, of course, in the long term, things will go to zero when humanity doesn't exist anymore, you know, but that's so far in the future that it's not even worth thinking about today. The, the interesting questions are, are there plausible scenarios under which it can go to zero in the, the reasonable long term, like over several hundred years? Um, that's, that's an interesting topic for debate. But to say that it'll go to zero eventually because the, the sun will burn out. Um, yeah, true. The, the universe will go to zero, too. Uh, I, I'm not sure he said that. It was just my interpolation of two different arguments but since we got to this point and it it's kind of spontaneous i thought i was going to ask you about the keep keep but this is way too interesting <laughs> so i just want to ask you what you think about this what should i call it financialization is that a word when mm -hmm. bitcoin has become way too entwined with traditional finance and we get etfs and we get all of these artificial ways of trading Bitcoin, which are not necessarily backed by actual proof of work Bitcoin. 
So this is one way in which they can actually kill it and take it to zero just by doing leveraged trading with Bitcoins that don't actually exist and becoming part of the price aggregation. Yeah, I'm skeptical that it can be taken to zero through derivatives, uh, you know, other than some kind of flash crash, which by definition is not zero moments later. Um, yeah, the financialization of Bitcoin is something that is, you know, worth exploring. I don't fear it. I, I embrace it because it is yet another uh, another symptom of Bitcoin's rise. That, like the whole point of Bitcoin is that it grows and grows and takes over the entire financial system. And with time, um, the world's financial system is built on decentralized technologies instead of being built on fiat and banks. And that process happens gradually, and it happens by uh, by Bitcoin seeping into the traditional world, convincing people at the margins to own some, to use it for something that before they would have used a bank transfer for, or they would have held in fiat. Um, so it being integrated further into financialization, to me, has always been inevitable if Bitcoin is to succeed. And um, I think it just, it requires you to be careful with what you're owning you know if i have i have some bitcoin on private keys like i don't care too much about financialization in the long term because i know that i own those bitcoins um and if someone owns some kind of interesting synthetic asset then yeah that financialization could matter a lot and could destroy what they thought they had so again as with many things in bitcoin it requires a certain degree of personal responsibility Oh, yeah, but I guess the next billion people are going to be brought in the moment when banks become custodians of your Bitcoins and allow you to invest by going to the clerk that you have been going to for like 20 or 20 years or depending on how old you are. And you go to your local bank and you talk to them and you go, you know, I I want to buy some Bitcoins and they're going to be like, yeah, sure, we're going to add it to your account but there is no way to actually verify it on the blockchain. You can verify the reserves of the bank to see that they're still there. And you deduct the amount that you have from the reserves and you're like, yeah, this checks out. So they definitely have more Bitcoins than I own. So I should be fine if I want to withdraw, but there is no guarantee that they- But you don't know the number of claims. Exactly. There is no guarantee that they don't engage in fractional reserves Yeah, I I think like a good way to think of this is that Bitcoin doesn't guarantee everyone's safety. What it does, however, is guarantee that anyone who cares to learn can use it safely. Everyone in the world, regardless of who they are or where they live, can hold Bitcoin in their own private keys. That is not precluded from a single person on earth. That some people will choose not to do that and will simply choose to hold some kind of derivative or synthetic Bitcoin at a financial institution. You know, that's that's unfortunate, or maybe for them it works. Um, but no one's stuck in that system. Anyone who becomes educated can leave it if they choose to, and that's that's what's so that's what's so magical. And you know, this is true of just custody generally. You know, like Bitcoin isn't important because everyone will hold it on their own keys it's important because anyone can hold it on their own keys if and when they choose to my only concern and something which i will try to educate however i can 
is to make people verify that they actually own the coins. And I have friends who have bought Bitcoins this year for the first time, and they use services like Revolut. Is that what you call it? Revolut? Yeah. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, Revolut. Yeah, Revolut. They use that one, which is very popular here in Europe. And they yep. also use eToro, which unless you use the eToro X, which is their crypto-specific exchange, you actually buy ETFs, I think. Mm-hmm. No, CFDs. I think that's the abbreviation for it. I'm not sure what it stands for, but it's like a certificate of possession, but it's not directly a Bitcoin. But my concern is that they can create some sort of inflation in the 21 million cap and sell more Bitcoins than actually exist. And it's very hard to prove that they're doing this. Yep. Yeah, and that's that's totally possible and likely. I, I, everyone needs to understand that that will be happening. But for anyone who cares that it's happening, they can always just own their own, and that twenty-one million can't be inflated. So, yeah, it's it's you know it's complicated. And again, Bitcoin doesn't guarantee that everyone's money is safe all the time. It does guarantee that if you use it correctly, your money is safe all the time. Yeah, that's fair. But I still feel like I should do my best to educate people and explain that they should verify that they own the coins. And if they don't have access to the keys and cannot have access to the keys, then it's most likely a scam. I'm not saying that Revolut and eToro are scams. I'm just saying that they should allow allow withdrawals. Yeah, well, it's just a it's a different risk profile, right? Anyone who's holding it on their own keys, they do have some risks that you don't have if you're using a custodian. And certainly user error is probably the leading cause of pe- people losing their Bitcoin, not custodians. Um, so some people might just prefer that risk profile. But I, I think to your point, it is very important to to convey to them what that risk profile is. And if they if they make an educated choice to leave coins at a custodian, I'm I'm perfectly fine with that. But I don't want people to be leaving coins at a custodian totally oblivious to the fact that they're missing out on the most important attribute of Bitcoin generally, which is self sovereignty of that money. Right. So let's get back to the keep key. And before this, actually, I wanted to ask you about the Yubi keys that were being used in Mount Gox. Do you think that these devices that were given to people as an extra security step to log into their accounts have actually inspired the idea of hardware wallets? I don't know. I've never heard that before. I remember those keys. I, I still have a Mt. Gox branded YubiKey. Um, a lot of good that did me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ob- obviously that's a, a helpful way to prevent unauthorized sign into your account, you know, and people should generally, those are generally good things to use, but they do not prevent a custodian from running away or losing the money itself. Um, that's where a hardware wallet is much more, be- much more beneficial. Yeah, I know. But also you can use a Trezor or a Ledger. I'm not sure about the keep key for U2F purposes to use it as an, an extra signing in device. Like you'd use your yep, phone number you or some sort of app on your phone. You can use your hardware wallet. Yep, you, you can do that. We, we don't see a lot of people using the keep key for that, though. But the same protocols can be made to work there. 
I actually have an issue with my keep key because I forgot the pin number and I, mm -hmm. I did not own any coins on it. So I wasn't holding anything. I wanted to type in wrong pin numbers until it resets, but it doesn't reset. It just switches to a longer amount of time, like yep. a delay between attempts. Yep. So I got to a point where it's ridiculous. It takes like one week for me to try again, and I gave up. <laughs> you you wanted it to um, to reset and like destroy the keys. You mean like a full reset? Yeah, exactly. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That's good feedback. I remember the old app on the desktop, which was allowing me to do a full reset, but I cannot do it on the Shapeshift platform. So I guess that can be some sort of improvement that you can make. Yeah, I think that is in the pipeline. There's definitely some things about the old app that we still haven't been able to do in the new one. So that's unfortunate. We always have to deal with a bunch of priorities that are always competing, of course. Uh, you know, one of the main reasons we, we got away from that other app, two, you know, one was Chrome was uh, deprecating Chrome apps generally. Um, but two, there were so many scams, so many fake um, browser extensions and, and apps it was really causing like a lot of problems for people. And um, it's horrible to, you know, get an email from someone who's like, hey, what happened to my money? You know, I downloaded your your app and my money's gone. And then turns out they downloaded a fake one. Um, so what, we, what we've ended up doing is putting uh, explicitly fake apps in the store um, that look like they're real. And then in the, in the description of them, it says like, all of these are fake. You know, do not download any of these apps. And so we're trying to get the word out not to use those things. But it, yeah, it's a, it was a big problem. Oh yeah, I guess this is a very interesting way to solve the problem of fake apps, to create more fake apps, to make it redundant and promote the message that all apps are yeah. fake. <laughs> yep, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of an interesting idea. Um, so yeah, it's just, you know, anyone who's been in crypto a while knows how prevalent the scammers are and the thieves and trying to trying to make UX good and prevent people from falling into those traps is a constant struggle. I still get emails from the Ledger database hack. Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of people who try to fish, you know, they copy the interface perfectly, like they can replicate the structure and the aesthetics of a ledger official email address and they they nailed it with the colors and everything the font but they ask you for extra data and they make lots of assumptions like they did not get my home address like unfortunately it happened with lots of others they just got my email address and they make a lot of assumptions because my name is Vlad. So they try to say stuff like, so we have noticed an unusual activity on your ledger device. You have signed in from Russia or from Ukraine or whatever. And it's mm -hmm. funny because they assume that just because my name is Russian, I should be Russian. But they, they do try <laughs> to convince me that there was unusual activity on my device and I should click there and give them my 24 word seed phrase or something. Yeah, it's it's a war zone out there. So many people fall victim to those things and it's horrible because for a lot of people that's like their first experience with crypto, you know, and then you can imagine someone who is just getting into it and then 
they finally work up the courage to like get involved and to own some and then that happens you can see why that would be just so disillusioning it's really sad hey psst. hey what's your plan for the next bitcoin top unless you need the money to purchase something you probably should not touch infinitely inflationary fiat check out voltoro and figure out to which extent hard money like gold and silver can help you preserve your purchasing power. You will be able to get back into Bitcoin as soon as the price hits a new bottom and you will not be subjected to the arbitrary inflation-driven volatility of fiat or fiat-backed coins. Obviously, this is not financial advice and you should understand that all trading involves risks. Wasabi Wallet connects to your full Bitcoin node, and if you're not running one, it downloads block filters anonymously via Tor. In either case, you're getting excellent privacy. Download the software today at wasabiwallet.io. So, a series of questions that I usually ask the guests this season concerns just listing the most popular hardware wallets and you can tell me what you like about them and what you think that maybe that the keep key does better and i've noticed that on the shapeshift platform you can log in also with your trezor and your ledger so you did not mm -hmm. make it exclusive to the device that you own which i appreciate you're not conditioning yeah. users to purchase a device that you own to use the platform yeah. So yeah, our goal, our goal was really like with that acquisition, just to help people, you know, move into self custody more easily. You know, like the, it's hard to run the numbers on on hardware wallets and make a big business out of that. Um, you know, this is back to your earlier point. This is one of the reasons why we sell them for like thirty or forty dollars instead of hundreds. Um, we, we're not trying to make money on the devices. We're, we're trying to bring people into self custody and away from centralized custodians and so giving them a good ux on hardware was really important to us yep and i was about to ask you what you think about the trezor one and the trezor model t if there is anything that you really appreciate about them and what do you think that the kit key does better yeah um i think the the main thing right now is like it's a it's a software question not so much a hardware question so the the hardware wallets don't really need to do much to advance the hardware that's not really where the cutting edge is the cutting edge is in the software layer and like right now to be able to convert between digital assets directly from a hardware wallet um, with no intermediary and very soon you know through shapeshift you'll be able to earn yield on a non-wrapped bitcoin from your keep key like that's that's going to be killer and uh that's a software thing not not so much a hardware thing so yeah i i still prefer in terms of trezor i still prefer the original one i had um maybe it's nostalgia but the the aluminum trezor is like still my favorite okay that's a very strong opinion and very strange at the same time because usually people appreciate the Model T because it has that touch screen and it also has the Shamir backup, which I guess is the killer app that they have. 
But from this perspective, you seem to be on the same page with Slush, whom I interviewed last year. And he was very much in favor of software as opposed to hardware. He was saying that it's very hard for hardware to keep up with everything. And it's almost impossible to sell a new device every year to update on every possible design flaw. So it's better to just have some sort of simple hardware configuration that you can toggle with your software and improve over time. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, even on that touchscreen question, you know, no one, no one's going to have a hardware wallet with a touchscreen nicer than the mobile phone that they have in their pocket. And um, so you're, you're just always going to be behind the curve in terms of, you know, cool hardware. So if you go instead the route of kind of dumb hardware, that's just simple and secure. Um, and then you make the experience focused around the, the software and the interaction with the hardware. You know, re- really a, key, a hardware wallet is only supposed to do one thing. It's supposed to have like a physical click that can't be touched from the internet. And if you click it, then you've authorized a signature. And that's that's really it. You know, everything else is, is a luxury. So um, yeah, I we, we had talked after we acquired KeepKey about investing in a new generation device and we started going down all these paths of like super sexy hardware features and all this stuff and it it just got to the point where we were like that's not really what these things are for um so we we made that decision to just stick with the the current design which is beautiful and simple and worked really well right i mean i suppose i should ask you about the ledger because they are the ones that promote hardware over software and they want their hardware to contain that secure element chip, which they developed themselves. It's not open source. You're not really sure what's going on. They're not really sure what's going on. So it's like a black box, which signs your transactions and manages your operations in a way that you cannot verify. But a lot of people seem to be fine with that. And the priority to them is not to be open source, but to be as secure as possible. So what do you think about their approach and their devices? I th- I think any wallet that people are trying to store cryptocurrency on has to be open source. And it, it doesn't mean that closed source is not secure. It just means that you can never know. And as a fundamental principle of security, open source tends over time and iteration to be more secure than closed. So I, I think that's an important design principle. Um, it's It's certainly one which we wouldn't fear from. Here's something interesting of which you reminded me right now. I was speaking with a friend like last week or something, and he tried to argue that open source is for hardcore socialists. (laughs) And I tried to explain to him, you know, it's very socialist to expect the state to protect your business with patents and stuff like that to prevent others from working on innovation. I love that. I mean, the, the... The most, you know, hyper capitalist invention of the last century is Bitcoin, which is <laughs> which is purely open source. And, and all these all these blockchains that have gotten big and powerful, like that's all open source stuff and billions and billions of dollars of capital has been built on these things um, <laughs> to say that that's socialist is pretty funny. I think this comes more from the Linux side, as the people using Linux tend to be more on the far left. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think like within getting into ideology a little bit within a 
within a libertarian world where things are open, um, people can kind of do whatever they want, right? So like in open source, you can have a bunch of people that are using it who are very socialist within that uh, paradigm. But the opposite can never be true. You can't have a, a closed controlled socialist system with free open stuff happening within it. You know, one is exclusive of the other, but not the other way around. And I, I think that's a really important principle. So just because open source software permits anything doesn't mean um, doesn't mean you have to have a certain worldview. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. But moving on to the discussion about hardware wallets, did you get to try the cold card or the Bitbox O2 or some of the new ones like the Blockstream Jade? I have not tried those. Um, I currently have a ballet wallet on my desk, which I need to get to shortly. But yeah, I have not tried all those. Which one of the ballet wallets is it? Is it the standard, I think it's called the real or the pro? I'm not sure, actually. It should say like in the top left corner. Oh, it's real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a very small but significant difference between them because with the real one, you have parts of the private key which get generated in China and in the United States in a way that they cannot match. But if you don't trust the company that it's honest about this, and I guess it's still better than what Mike Caldwell was doing with Cassius. But if you mm -hmm. want to follow the don't trust verify spirit of Bitcoin, you can generate your own seed phrase and encrypt it with the BIP38 standard and you send it to cool. Ballet and they print that BIP38 encrypted private key on your card. But you're the only yep. one who holds the decryption key. So you're the only one who knows what the words are to recover the funds. Yeah, so Mike, Mike Caldwell actually did that um, for some of the people buying higher denomination amounts or who were particularly paranoid. So there were some of those Cassius coins that were uh, done in that way, that were um, encrypted with a password that only the buyer had. And when I, when I learned about that back then, this was you know 2011, that totally blew my mind because <laughs> I was just starting to learn about cryptography and I was just amazed that like secrets could be created in these ways and uh, and not known to the people that were you know like creating them um, it's been it's, it's pretty magical technology when you look at it I don't think people really appreciate how cool it is it is <laughs> like I don't know the first time when I did this and I generated my own seed phrase and I encrypted it it was mind-blowing like I can share that with anyone and they're not going to be able to de decrypt it because I'm the only one who holds the decryption key. That kind of yeah. blew my mind. Yeah, and then you look at like, um, once once you get into crypto and you look at signatures as a concept, and then you go back to like scribbling a name on a piece of paper, this is the norm that society does for everything from you know multi-million dollar real estate transactions and business deals down to the smallest thing. And it's done with scribbling a line that like anyone can relatively easily forge. Uh, and then you, you look at a digital signature and where it's mathematically provable and it can't be forged. It can only be created by a certain, certain key. And yet the world has not adopted that in any, in any, you know, popular sense. 
So, you know, ho hopefully as people become more familiar with cryptocurrencies, they will start to bring those technologies and standards of information into other areas. Did you get to play with multi-sig setups or some your secret sharing? Yeah, um, I've set up multi-sig a number of times with some ledgers and I think using Electrum. Um, and it's always been okay, like that, that UX hasn't been great, but highly secure and it's, it's workable. I know there are some better solutions these days. Yeah, there are so many people working on this and I've had Benma from Shift Crypto, which is a company that produces the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. And they're working on some sort of standardization for multi-sigs. And it's interesting to see so much dedication to this one field of securing your Bitcoins. But they do believe that multi-sigs can be like a silver bullet for security. Yeah, I, th I actually think that MPC, um, MPC and TSS signatures are, are going to win there because they are a lot more flexible and you can use them with um, any kind of digital asset. Whereas multi-sig requires uh, protocol support. So when, when we were looking at this, you know, like with the keep key, for example, we were, we were thinking about putting multi-sig support into the app. Um, we could do that easily for, for Bitcoin and clones like Litecoin, but uh, certain other protocols don't support the same thing. So then you start working on a multi-party flow that is, or a uh, multi-sig flow that is uh, only working on certain chains and not others. Um, whereas multi-party computation works on all chains, which is which is really slick. Yeah, there's a lot about security that's being developed and it just blows my mind. Like I played with Shamir Secret Sharing under Twizzler Model T and it's like a multi-sig, but for an individual. In a multi-sig mm -hmm. setup, you generate multiple keys that need to be signed on the blockchain. But with Shamir backups, you have to generate parts of your private key. And let's say that you create five parts, but you require three of them to recreate the private key to your wallet. So you don't need to actually get on the blockchain and sign signatures. You just need to recover these parts. And it feels a lot like Dragon Ball Z or something when you need to search for the parts. <laughs> you can geographically spread them in different parts of the world and create a treasure hunt or, I don't know, maybe leave some metal plates with your partial, what do I call them, like parts of your private key and leave them maybe at your parents' place and at your lawyer's place and whatever so that nobody can actually get them unless he has all the information about where you kept them and where you left them. And the parties that hold them may not even know what they're holding. Yeah. With with those, is it visible after a signature is done which parts of the key signed it? No, because it's not on the public blockchain. So you, you need cool. any one of them. Like maybe three, three out of five, you can do any setup up to 20, I think. Right, but once you once you have those, like let's say you have a certain three out of five that have signed, is it clear from the resulting signature which three it was? No. Cool. Because it's important just to recover your wallet. So it works in a way like a passphrase, but it's, it's extended 
to these parts, it's only local on the wallet, on the device. Got it. It's kind of stupid that for now, I think only the Trezor Model T supports the standard and no other device has done it. But at the same time, it's fully open source. So if, for example, Trezor goes out of business next week and you cannot find another wallet that you can buy and yours breaks, you can still recover it by creating your own device according to the specifications that are open source. So I suppose that's the nicest feature about open source that you don't have to rely on a company which produces something. Exactly. Yeah, super important. And it's very underrated. Like a lot of people trust Ledger and I'm fine with that. They have a good record for security, not for privacy. But, you know, if you're in this space for all the right reasons and you have the best of intentions, you have to fully embrace open source. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Okay, so I think my last question to you is if you're to travel back in time and tell your younger self 10 years ago how to secure Bitcoins, because I suppose you did lose some at some point. What kind yeah, of wallet well. <laughs> would you tell yourself to use and I don't know what kind of decisions would you make to make sure that your stash remains intact the only ones I ever lost through mismanagement was really in Mount Gox and I was fully aware of the risk of having them there so I it wasn't like I was ignorant and just kept them there for for fun they were there because I was trying to sell them at that very like within that week <laughs> and then they got frozen. So that was just horrible luck. But I knew I knew that risk. Um, so certainly I would tell myself to not have done that. Um, but I, I think with, uh, I mean, if you, if you can go back in time, it's mostly important to just tell someone about hardware wallets generally. Like all, all three of the main ones have been really great historically and the new ones work really well too. So the, the good thing about these you know, standards is that uh, multiple companies can build things that all do a good job of um, of satisfying the security condition. And what's most important isn't which hardware wallet you're using; it's that you are using a hardware wallet instead of a custodial account. That's that's the key thing that you should be conveying. Oh yeah, I really agree with that. But at the same time, I get this question like a lot: like, which hardware wallet should I buy? And I usually reply to them, why do you want to buy one in the first place? Is it just because you want to move your coins from one exchange to your own custody? Or is it because you want to do a specific, I don't know, task or something? Do you travel a lot? Like, do you need physical security? Are you fine with remembering your passphrase? Because I've learned that a lot of people are terrible with rem remembering passwords or storing them. Or maybe yeah. that it's just the FUD that companies use to sell devices with secure chips. I don't know. I think they, they all look for edges over one another. But, you know, I think in a large part, it's if someone is curious about getting the hardware wallet, that is the most important thing. Um, it, it matters a lot less. As long as they're buying one of the reputable ones, they're all, they're all going to be vastly more secure than leaving it with a custodian, assuming you've done the basic task of learning how to use it safely, which isn't that hard. 
Yeah, so why, I, I know I promised that would be the last one, but I gotta ask, why would anyone get the keep key as opposed to something else? Yeah, the main reason to get the keep key is just the experience with the Shapeshift platform generally. So if people are wanting like a purely self-custodial crypto experience, um, because we own KeepKey, we're able to integrate that experience really seamlessly into the shapeshift.com platform. So it's not about like the hardware being better, although it is a really beautiful device with a great screen on it. It's about the interaction between Shapeshift and the KeepKey. So any, anyone who's used that together, um, and especially now that we're moving into decentralized exchange and lending markets uh, and the KYC is gone, um, you know, that's really the killer use case. Yeah, sounds good. And I appreciate, you know, this honesty, as in you did not make promises about the device being very secure or something like that. You just adapted the answer to the service that you provide with Shapeshift, which I, I think is really yeah. great. Do you, do you know yeah, if I... Shapeshift, not Shapeshift, KeepKey works with Wasabi? I think it does work with Electrum. But what Wasabi? It does. I don't know about Wasabi. It works with uh, with Electrum and several others. I suppose it should work with anything that works with a Trezor. Yeah, generally it does. Okay, so thank you very much for this interview, Mr. Vortes. I'm not sure if I have any questions left at this point. All right. Well, thanks, Vlad. This was a good chat. Yeah. Voltoro has a 100% track record with fully audited and insured gold bullion that are secured in a top-tier tax-free Swiss vaulting facility. It also features the generous affiliate program OTC Trading, a physical delivery and pickup, or trade back to Bitcoin in seconds. Register for free and check out the ways in which you can trade hard money and preserve your wealth. And if you want to help this show, sign up using the voltero.com slash Bitcoin Takeover link that you can also find in the description. Keep in mind that this is not financial advice, all trading involves risks and you are responsible for your own decisions. Wasabi Wallet's innovative coin joints will make your bitcoins more fungible. So if you accumulate more than 0.1 BTC, you can mix it with other users to remove all traces about their whereabouts. So it's like putting multiple fingerprints on your dollar bills and it becomes impossible to determine the last few owners of the money. Download Wasabi Wallet today and start coin joining.